Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 304. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Dirty South. Dirty South. So it's going to be a fun one. I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a fun one. Uh, remember, this is the first of our thematic for a while. This one's going to be kind of chronological, though. Uh, I'm going to be going until about 06 or so, but um, 2006 or so. So you're going to be alive for some of this. That being said, though, uh, it's more thematic, more talking about a region than anything else. So, the Dirty South. So, uh, we're focusing on the Dirty South, and mainly today I'm going to be focusing on, on two cities primarily, Houston and Atlanta. Um, in the rap world, if you go over one more, where is the Dirty South? In the rap world, it's um, theoretically a region, theoretically a region, but in reality, it's primarily five cities. Uh, there's primarily five cities which uh, make up the Dirty South. Uh, primarily five cities that make up the Dirty South. Uh, they are, let's see, here we go. We got Miami, which we've talked about before. Kind of its own theme. Uh, theoretically the least like the rest of the Dirty South. Then you have New Orleans, which we've also talked about already. It too is kind of its own thing in terms of like bounce music and all. Um, but it's more similar to the rest of the Dirty South than something like Miami is. Miami is a little bit of an outlier. Uh, Houston, which we're going to be talking about today, uh, it's weirdly isolated in the rap world with a bit of its own trends. It's more the middle, but probably closer to being something like New Orleans of being its own thing than the rest of the Dirty South, but it still has a lot more overlap than New Orleans does with the rest of the South in terms of music, uh, Dirty South music, I should say, Dirty South rap music. Uh, fourth one is Memphis, which is actually very similar to Atlanta, but it actually has set a few trends. And finally, Atlanta. Atlanta is viewed as the capital of the Dirty South, most important city in the Dirty South, uh, kind of a trendsetter. Now, what is interesting about this is even though these are five fairly big metros in the South, uh, some of the biggest Southern metros are not represented in the Dirty South, which is kind of interesting, which is something we can discuss in class if you'd like to. Uh, for instance, uh, Dallas, uh, DFW, uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area is one of the largest metro areas, period, in the entire country, uh, has a fairly sizable African-American population, uh, not much of a rap scene. Weirdly enough, uh, Houston has had more impact on the rap world and the Dirty South rap world than Dallas does. Um, I'd actually be hard-pressed to think of a Dallas rapper. Maybe y'all can think of one I don't know of, but if we're talking about this Dirty South time period, which is, eh, you know, mid, mid to late 90s to the mid to late 2000s, or so, not really by anybody coming from Dallas. Uh, another one is Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham is very large, actually. Uh, the Birmingham metro is actually bigger than New Orleans, uh, if you just talk about the sheer size of it. Uh, also has a very sizable African-American population. Uh, not too much of a rap scene. I, I really can't think of anybody who came from Atlanta, uh, sorry, not Atlanta, uh, Birmingham in the rap scene. Um, Nashville, we'll talk about more next week. There have been one or two rap guys from Nashville, uh, but that scene is more of a country town. So, I mean, that's two fairly, uh, also Oklahoma City, a very big metro, not much of a rap scene. So, that's kind of interesting. And North Carolina, uh, sorry, Petey Pablo. Uh, North Carolina is a fairly, you know, Charlotte, fairly highly populated area. Not too much in terms of singers coming out of there. Rappers, I should say. Uh, we're also doing the outside links kind of early. Usually in these lectures, I kind of do the, you know, the the outside, you know, what's going on in the rest of American society at the end. I'm actually doing this one before. So uh, mainly after World War II, the South becomes what was known as the Sun Belt. If you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of like downtown Metro Atlanta. 
Um, it's called the Sun Belt, and kind of going through a little bit of a renaissance. Uh, there's an influx of population in new metropolitan areas. Um, why are so many people coming to the South in this time period? Um, also, it's the idea that the Southwest is becoming included in the rest of the South, so places like Phoenix and um, South Southern California, um, which they are generally not considered part of the Dirty South, but they are considered part of the Sun Belt. Um, the Sun Belt is going through a bit of a renaissance. Why are people coming? Which is something I promised I'd tell you about 30 seconds ago. Uh, mainly because of the low cost of land. Land is fairly cheap in the South. Land is fairly cheap in the South, particularly for manufacturing. Uh, because of the growth of mechanization and kind of the downturn in Southern um, agriculture, not downturn in Southern agriculture, but mechanization of Southern agriculture, uh, there's a lot of land that's seemingly available. And also there's a lot of workers who are available because mechanization pretty much got rid of sharecropping. Mechanization pretty much got rid of sharecropping, so you have a labor force that really wants to work, and a lot of manufacturing is interested in tapping into that labor supply. Likewise, uh, the South, for many reasons, too complex to get into right here, but all you need to know, the South has never been a very strong place for labor unions. Uh, labor unions have never done very well in the South. Um, this is another thing that's appealing to very large businesses. Um, generally, manufacturing concerns uh, don't care for labor unions too much. They feel they, call, they take too much money. And so because the South has a very eager labor supply of displaced sharecroppers, and you actually have quite a bit, good bit of land available, you have people uh, coming to the South in a pretty large number, particularly for manufacturing. Uh, the other thing, and this is going to sound kind of silly, but one of the main reasons why people were able to come to the South after uh, World War II is the rise of air conditioning. Um, basically, uh, the post-war period was a very profitable period for the rest of the country, and air conditioning became much cheaper and much more widely available. So there's a lot more places in the South that have air conditioning. Um, air conditioning is a major game-changer Especially when you're talking about some of these really large factories. I mean, some of these very large factories could get swelteringly hot with so many people working in them. And now that you have air conditioning, it can actually make it cooler. It's a safety issue. Uh, and also, it's just a, a living thing. Uh, I would hate to live in a house without air conditioning. I'm sure you feel the exact same way because pretty much everybody listening to this is from the South or is living in the South because of your nickels. And you can see air conditioning is a main thing. So this whole dream is kind of, it's this dream of what's called the New South. Uh, something that actually been around since Reconstruction, since after the Civil War, but the Sun Belt is kind of seen as fulfilling this New South. Uh, it could conceivably become a, a, a reality, this idea that the South is going to fundamentally change, uh, have an influx of cash, uh, influx of people, you know, more people coming to the region for the first time in forever. A lot of places get very, very big. Uh, probably the best example of that is Texas. Uh, the Texas city, the Texas trio, they call it, of San Antonio, uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth metro, and Houston. They become super large in this time period, pretty much after World War II. Those cities get tremendously big. Uh, same thing with Birmingham. Birmingham has also been a little bit of a late bloomer. Um, neither, None of those areas really existed during the Civil War. Uh, Birmingham didn't exist at all during the Civil War. Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston were not very big at all during the Civil War. Uh, same thing with Miami. Miami did not exist during the, during the Civil War whatsoever. 
So it's this idea that there's new areas, and they think that they could kind of get away from some of the old problems of the South. Now, there are definitely some challenges. Uh, the South did not change that much. Um, housing was very much an issue, particularly in terms of uh, discriminatory housing. Uh, African Americans not getting the same sort of access to housing. Uh, schooling is a major issue in the South, basically. Uh, this idea about, you know, where are people going to go to school? Are they going to be segregated or desegregated schools? Uh, breakaway school districts, all this type of thing. Um, also, the old skeletons of Jim Crow. That, that's the only way I could, I could call it, is basically, you know, after the 60s, it's theoretically, you know, segregation is gone, but the old skeletons die very hard. They're very much still hot-button issues. And it seems, in the words of Jimmy Carter, uh, who was governor of Georgia and then before he becomes president of the United States, that the South, well, actually, he, he, the quote is, he's talking about Georgia, but he says that Georgia is too busy to hate. And it's the idea that it applies to the South as well. Too busy to hate um, in that, you know, they're, they're too busy working and making money that they don't have the time to really discriminate or be prejudiced. Uh, does this actually happen? Not too, too much, but it's still something good to talk about in the sense of being an ideal. Ideal. Now, it's interesting for African Americans in the South. For African Americans in the South, um, unlike Los Angeles, unlike New York, um, families had lived in the South for generations. African American families had been in the South for generations. Uh, we, we talked a lot about how in Los Angeles and in New York City, very transient population, people coming in for jobs uh, as part of the Great Migration, or as part of World War II mobilization, or immigrant people, you know, coming in from the Caribbean. Um, there is heritage and history within the South for African Americans. It's the idea that, you know, your family has been in here for as long as, you know, anybody could conceivably remember until slavery. And it's the idea that, yes, you might be in a new metro area, but there's still a very deep sense of roots there. A problematic sense, to, to, be, to be sure... I mean, it's a very problematic um, history and heritage for a lot of African Americans in the South, but heritage nonetheless. It has very much ingrained culture. Uh, this is not like a place like New York or Los Angeles where it's a newer population dealing with economic realities. It's a population that, as I said, has been there for generations, pretty much as long as anybody can remember. And I should also mention that uh, it also the South also has a much higher population of rural African Americans. Uh, we're going to talk about that a lot more when we get into country rap. Uh, but still, you, you need to think about the fact that the South has a fairly sizable population of rural African Americans, whereas in the rest of the country, particularly places like New York and Los Angeles, where we've seen rap music develop before, um, or well, developed in New York but got big in other places, uh, it's seen as a more urban phenomenon. Uh, you are having more rural African American rapping phenomenons in the South. I'm going to talk about that considerably more next week. That's the only thing I'll be talking about next week. Now, this manifest, you've got over one slide, uh, in quite a bit of ways in the 90s and 2000s, uh, the South becomes more normalized in both the black and mainstream experience. Uh, more people are living in the South. Uh, the Southern quirks are seen as more normal. Um, you know, it's not seen as necessarily um, outside of the rest of the country. Uh Particularly a place like Atlanta, for instance, if you if you see the picture right there, that's the 1996 Olymp uh, Olympics. They were held in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, that would have been unheard of, not 
like 10, 20 years prior. The idea that you're going to have a major international exhibition in like Atlanta, like deep south, you know, the, the place that theoretically America before had tried to ignore or pretend on the international stage wasn't that important. Now it's becoming like the representation of the United States. It, it, it shows that the city and the South by proxy is modern and American. It was one that could represent the entire country. So it's important to keep in mind that the South was being seen as more of a part of the country than it had been before, akin to what Southern rap is doing, okay? It had been on the outskirts and kind of flirted with inclusion, but never really makes it big until this time period. It's only whenever the South is seen as more normalized in the context of the rest of the country that Southern rap is able to really cross over and really speak to not just the South, but other persons as well. Go for one side. Uh, the first real one we've got to talk about, uh, the first real rap scene to really develop in the Dirty South, as you will, um, outside of Atlanta, which is kind of problematic, because we talked about it last week, but Atlanta, not Atlanta, sorry, Miami, uh, is Houston. Houston is the first rap scene outside of New York and Los Angeles to really gain national attention. I know Philadelphia exists. Uh, it's not really much of a scene. You just have, like, individual rappers. Uh, same thing with Chicago. Uh, Chicago, until relatively recently, has not been too much of a rap town. Uh, very large African-American population, in incredibly large, uh, sorry, urban African-American population. Uh, not the biggest rap town out there. Not a lot of rappers coming from Chicago. I know Kanye exists. I know Chance the Rapper exists. Uh, Common was probably the first one to really put the Chicago on the scene, but not a ton of rappers out there. All right. Plus, we're talking about the Dirty South today, so don't at me. Uh, you're not going to at me. You're not going to tweet me about this. Anyway, um, Houston is a very large metropolitan area within the United States in terms of population. Um, Houston is really big. Uh, Houston is much bigger than you think. Um, it's, I believe, like fifth or sixth biggest city metro area in the entire country. Um, but it doesn't really seem to have that much of a reputation on the national scene. Uh, the same could be said of other Texas cities. Uh, Dallas, well, I think Dallas has a bit more of a reputation than Houston does. Like, not on a rap scene, but just like in general. But Houston in particular really seems overlooked. This really applies to the city's black population. Uh, Houston has a very large African-American population. Very large. It feels uh, overlooked by the outside world, even by other black people. Um, there's kind of a... You know, it's weird to say for a place like Texas, but there's a bit of an inferiority complex among Houston's African-American population as though they're kind of being overlooked. Honestly, amongst Houston's population in general. Uh, they feel like they're overlooked by the rest of the country, which is weird because they're in Texas, and Texans are not ones to be overlooked, but whatever. Now, Houston does have some music labels in its time period, uh, most notably Don Roby's Duke Peacock Records, um, but it's oddly underserved despite having a very large audience base. Um, that's just some one of the weird things about Houston for the longest time. Very large African-American population, uh, you know, you do have some African-American labels that try to come around. Nothing really too sustaining, even though it's a very large population. I mean, I guess we could discuss that in class, but that's one of those weird things about Houston. So it's only natural that kids, you know, black kids who listen to rap music in Houston would start their own thing. 
Um, and it's really felt the first group to really get uh, attention nationwide from the Houston rap scene is the Ghetto Boys. Um, there they are right there, the Ghetto Boys. Uh, the Ghetto Boys, That what you see a picture of is a classic lineup. That is not uh, the original lineup. Uh, they're originally formed with a bunch of members who don't stand the band at all. Uh, the most important of this original lineup was a guy who had the moniker of Sir Rapalot, Sir Rapalot, who has a brother, go over one slide, uh, James Prince, better known as Jay Prince. Uh, Jay Prince was a used car salesman who wanted to get out of the ghetto however possible. Uh, he wanted to sell anything. He's like, look, I will sell whatever it takes. It doesn't matter. I want to get out of poverty, get out of the ghetto. It doesn't matter what I sell. Uh, he starts out actually selling cars. He's a used car salesman at first. Uh, pretty much he's like, look, the Ghetto Boys, you know, my brother's little group, I will sell them. It doesn't matter. Just a very enterprising, entrepreneurial young man. And so he's like, look, I, I want the Ghetto Boys to really make him money. Uh, kind of early on, and by the way, they, they get their start in like the 80s, mid-80s. They get their start. Uh, they go absolutely nowhere. Try to do like, you know, nightclub shows or whatever. Uh, an early addition to the lineup, though, is, if you go over one slide, uh, is a little person, a, a person of short stature, um, no, little person. Um, God, he's under four feet. He's a very short individual. Um, he's Jamaican by birth. He starts up as a backup dancer. Then he kind of starts rapping and kind of becomes, like, very emblematic of the group and all. Probably, probably the most emblematic member of the Ghetto Boys. Uh, his name is Richard Bushwick Bill Shaw. Everybody calls him Bushwick Bill. Uh, he was indeed a decent MC. He was definitely, he was a decent MC. He, I mean, it's still the mid-80s, so nobody's like, you know, as complex of a rapper as, you know, you would get later. But uh, Bushwick Bill, decent MC. Uh, and he's also an attraction simply because of his size. Like, he is a, he is a little person. He is a, you know, he's this short dwarf or whatever, like, really spitting rhymes, kind of dancing around. So he's starting to get some attraction because of that. Now, Bushwick Bill, one of their earlier albums, kind of introduces a new wrinkle to the whole rap genre. I've mentioned before, it's called Horrorcore. Uh, Horrorcore, uh, a song that Bushwick Bill does with the Ghetto Boys, is called Mind of a Lunatic. I do not have that for you. I do not have Mind of a Lunatic for you on, um, on Moodle because it's a pretty disturbing song. It's a, a very graphic song, a... A very gory song uh, that talks about, like, rape and necrophilia and a lot of things which are pretty disturbing. And by pretty, I mean super disturbing. Um, yeah, uh, this is stuff that had never been done before, stuff that had never been really been rapped about before. Um, it goes beyond what's kind of been done ever before. Um, that's not what they really get known for, but they keep enough of it that it kind of starts influencing later groups. We'll talk about that later. I think in one of your classes, we talked about the insane clown posse. That's the same sort of type of rap. I, I should mention that the group's earliest releases go absolutely nowhere. And the group disbands shortly thereafter. Uh, I believe by like 1987, they pretty much completely disbanded, kind of all gone their separate ways. Uh, but Jay Prince wants more. Jay Prince is like, Nope, I want to make money. I want to, you know, do what I can. And so basically, he makes his own record label, which is called Rapalot, named after his brother, who's no longer in the group, because Jay Prince reforms the group without his brother, which is, that's kind of funny. He's supposed to be the manager for the group, his record label is named after his brother, but he kicks his brother after, out of the group, 
Uh, brings in two new guys, um, Scarface and Willie D. Scarface is probably the one you might be familiar with. He's a legitimately very good MC. He's probably the best rapper of the Ghetto Boys. And, of course, he keeps Bushwick Bill. Uh, this is considered the group's classic lineup, and they find moderate success. Uh, the best-known track is 1991's uh, My Mind's Paying Tricks on Me. Mind Playing Tricks on Me. I have it right there. Uh, you, you can listen to it. Uh, it's from their album, We Can't Be Stopped. Uh, the the cover, the album cover of the Ghetto Boys, they uh, We Can't Be Stopped, pretty much gets them a lot of attention because it's a picture of Willie D and Scarface wheeling Bushwick Bill in the hospital. This is not staged. This is real. Uh, Bushwick Bill got shot in the eye. Actually, he lost his eye. This is a picture of Bushwick Bill, like, in the hospital right after he got his eye shot out, and basically they took a picture uh, and, you know, he even took off the eye patch. You could see, like, how jacked up his eye was. And that pretty much that got him a lot of notoriety. It was like, wow, there's this one-eyed little person who, like, got shot in the eye, and, like, that's their album cover. Uh, like I said, Jay Prince was able to parlay their success into rap a lot records. Uh, it's a decent regional hit. I, I, I cannot iterate this enough. They, they are a regional record label. Um, they, they get some attention nationwide, mainly because of the notoriety of, hey, there's this dwarf rapper who got his eye shot out. Let's, let's watch that. That's kind of interesting. Um, but it shows that Houston could maybe turn into something. Um, as the 90s go on, the group becomes overshadowed by other groups. Um, Scarface becomes a fairly decent known solo rapper for a while. Uh, Bushwick Bill just passed away. Uh, Bushwick Bill just passed away a year or two ago of kidney failure. Uh, he had, like, kidney issues, like a kidney cancer or something. So he just recently passed away. Uh, the two other trends I want you to know about Houston, because we will be spending most of our time today talking about Atlanta, uh, that'd be UGK and the idea of chopped and screwed. Uh, two things do need to be mentioned. The first one is UGK, or Underground Kings. Uh, Underground Kings is made up of Pimp C and Bun B. They're high school friends. They are from the Houston suburbs. Uh, they're kind of near, like, the coast. Uh, you know, Houston's fairly close to the Gulf Coast. Uh, they're from much closer to the coast, kind of near uh, Galveston area. Uh, they have so, they're very young when they get started. Uh, they, they make some middle, middling local records in the uh, late 80s. Uh, they become Houston famous, though, in the 90s. In the early 90s, uh, they become Houston famous. They become pretty well-known just within Houston. Not a lot of national attention. Uh, remember, Houston is a fairly decently sized area, which weirdly does not... The, what becomes you know, famous in Houston or popular in Houston doesn't necessarily cross over to the rest of the country. They actually disband for a while. They actually disband for a while. Uh, they come back and they kind of have a coming out party with... Um, here's a link to last week. Jay-Z's uh, song, Big Pimpin'. Uh, Big Pimpin', Spendin' Cheese. Yes, that Big Pimpin'. Do I have a video of it? I don't think I do. Uh, you're probably familiar with it. Um, it's well-known. Well, we'll talk about that video more when we talk about Video Vixens. It's one of the well-known Video Vixens videos. Um, so they're, they're called, you know, the Underground Kings, kind of the kings of the Houston rap scene for a while. Uh, they're, they're much more conventional than the Ghetto Boys. They are not doing horror stuff, like, at all at all. Uh, the second guy uh, thing I want you to know about is DJ Screw. Uh, Robert DJ Screw Davis, very influential DJ. Uh, he, too, is from the Houston suburbs, uh, like EGK was, and very well-known within the hip-hop community. Uh, within, 
Houston. Um, he's very much within the hip-hop generation. Uh, he starts DJing as a teen. He originates the chopped and screwed style. If you click over uh, on Moodle to an example of DJ Screw's work, uh, very synonymous with Houston. It pretty much it's when DJ Screw comes out with his chopped and screwed that the Houston rap scene really gets a distinct, like, definitive, emblematic style. Like, this is the Houston sound. Uh, very much chopped and screwed music. Uh, he doesn't really make beats or rap, per se. Uh, he does not... We'll talk about that. He doesn't originate the beats. Uh, he becomes, like, super Houston famous and ultimately nationally famous for his mixtapes, and particularly his style. Um, I should mention... Do I have a picture of that? No, I don't. I just have a picture of DJ Screw. Uh, the drug of choice in Houston is codeine, or better known as purple drink. Uh, basically, it is cough syrup. It is cough syrup, usually Robitussin, um, drunk with ice. Um, <laughs> sometimes I toss into it, but generally you're just drinking cough syrup. Um, it has the effect of slowing things down. Uh, supposedly, what it what it sounds like to listen to DJ Screw's music is what it sounds like to be on codeine and just listen to anything. That's pretty much what DJ Screw is trying to emulate. Ironically, that's also what kills him. In fact, um, the reason that DJ Screw becomes known nationwide is because he dies in 2000 of a codeine overdose. Uh, basically, he drinks way too much codeine, and he dies. Uh, like, gives him a heart attack or something. There may be some comorbidities. But primarily, he got drunk on... You, you, you don't get drunk on drink, but you... He overdosed on codeine. Even more ironically, that's also what kills Pimp C, one of the members of UGK in 2007. Uh, this, this becomes synonymous with Houston's music scene for a while. Uh, not people dying of codeine overdoses, but the chopped and screwed style. And it keeps Houston somewhat on the outs of the rest of the Dirty South, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Uh, generally speaking, well, we'll talk about that in just a second. So, let's talk about Atlanta. Uh, like Houston, uh, Atlanta is a very large metro area, which is weirdly underserved by earlier pop culture. Um, Atlanta is a very fast-growing city, but um, it's also a fairly old city too. Um, it it was one of the few that you know, one of the few of these dirty South cities. Well, not one of the few, but it was around before the Civil War. Atlanta was a major city before the Civil War, like New Orleans was. So you have a lengthy history of like more affluent African-Americans there. A lot of organizations that were based in Atlanta for quite a while, African-American organizations, uh, particularly HBCUs. There are a lot of historically black colleges and universities in Atlanta. As I mentioned earlier, it's the, it's the quote-unquote modern southern city, which is too busy to hate. Uh, Atlanta is particularly known for its white flight, though, and its suburbs. White flight suburbs and sprawl. Um, the city of Atlanta, the the, uh, the Atlanta metro, I should say, um, is large and very highly populated. Not as big as Houston's, but very large. Uh, like a lot of other southern cities, the city proper of Atlanta, like the actual city of Atlanta, it's very, um, what's I'm looking for? Not segregated, but very divided in terms of class. Pretty much the only people living in Atlanta itself are either super, super rich or super, super poor. Uh, with limited services, like education, uh, for its poor black residents. Um, 
the more middle classy people, both black and white, tend to live in the Atlanta suburbs. There's a ton of them. Uh, Atlanta is well known for its sprawl, for its suburbs. There's tons of suburbs. I'm not going to get into it. If you know anybody who lives in Atlanta, they probably don't actually live in Atlanta. They probably live in like Buckhead or one of the gazillions of suburbs that are around Atlanta. Now, just, you know, something I want you to think about whenever we talk about this in class, think about what this has to do with sprawl, ideas of taxation, uh, incorporation, things like that. And I, I should mention this right now, um, you know, with the success of various African-American labels, something like Motown and other black acts, a lot of record labels make it a point to have like a black executive or A&R person. A&R stands for Artisan Repertoire. Within a record label, they're the people who are discovering new acts. Uh, the AR job is pretty much, are you going to be discovering new acts? Uh, a lot of record labels, because they say, hey, there's money to be made in black music, they start, uh, you know, they start really trying to find black executives. They want to find black executives uh, and other individuals who really can tap into these black markets, find black acts to get a record label money. Uh, one of these is, if you go over one slide, Michael Malden. Michael Malden, he was the president of black music for Columbia Records, and he later became an uh, executive vice president of just Columbia Records. Uh, Columbia Records is not a black record label, quote-unquote. This is a regular record label that has a black division, and Michael Maldwin is the head of it. Now, Michael Maldwin, I should mention, he is never a musician. Uh, he starts out as a roadie and then a tour manager for a lot of different funk acts. Um, he's known mainly for funk music, mainly known for, like, you know, kind of uh, funky music, uh, not really quite R&B, but, uh, you know, James Brownsy type acts, uh, before he gets into the business side as with artist management, uh, basically becoming a manager for various artists. That's ultimately how he gets to Columbia. He started out as a manager. Some of his acts get signed to Columbia. People in Columbia take a shine to him. They think he's a very hard worker, and they think he's very good at picking out um, popular black acts, so they take him as an executive. Uh, he's able to work himself to a higher than his fairly lower class upbringing. Uh, he's originally from a fairly poor area in the Carolinas. I believe it's North Carolina, but it might be South Carolina. He comes from a fairly poor background. Um, but uh, because of his success in the music business, because he becomes a music executive, he's able to provide his family and his children with a very affluent life. Uh, I should mention he gets married and has kids when he's still a teenager, so... Uh, he has his first kid when he's like 19, and uh, <laughs> so um, you know, he definitely needs to work hard to you know do something good for his children. Uh, he also gets involved with promoting rap shows whenever he is fairly young, in the mid-80s with Def Jam guys. He, uh, he does promote, uh, promote uh, several concerts with a couple of Def Jam type artists, and, and Maldwin's about 35 years old when this is going on. But that's when we get to the important guy, if you go over one slide. Uh, Malden has a son named Jermaine, who's born when Malden is only 19 years old. And by the time Malden is promoting rap music, his teenage son is in a very impressionable state. Uh, his son begins rapping and dancing, and his dad helps promote him. Uh, he's never a very big rapper, but he does get into artist representation like his father. In order to distance himself from his dad, Jermaine professionally goes by his middle name, Dupree. So, Jermaine Dupree, you may have heard of him, you may not have. I cannot iterate how young Dupree is when he starts signing artists. He's still a teenager. 
But unlike rappers who have to hustle incredibly hard to get their acts to the attention of the, the big labels, uh, Dupree has a dad who's a major executive. So it's a very easy sale to various rap acts. Like, hey, uh, my dad is the head of black music for the you know Columbia, a very major record label. So I, I can I can get you through doors. Uh, the first big taste that Dupree has with Atlanta hip hop. Oh, I, I should mention that real quick. Um, Maldron has settled down in Atlanta, in suburban Atlanta. That's where Jermaine Dupree grows up. Um, you know, even though uh, Maldron's originally from the Carolinas, um, he raises his family in Atlanta. And the first big taste that uh, Atlanta ha- that Dupree has with Atlanta hip hop is with Crisscross, a a pair of te- preteen rappers. Uh, they're like he discovers them at a mall, whatever. They're like eleven years old. Um, their their first and biggest hit is Jump, which is the definition of pop rap. It's actually one of the first rap songs to go number one on the Billboard chart. Uh, ironically, it's fourth. Uh, the first ever is Ice Ice Baby. Uh, the second one is Good Vibrations by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Uh, Marky Mark, you might know him better as Mark Wahlberg, the actor. Um, the first non-white person to get uh, to have a number one rap song is uh, Set Adrift on a Memory Bliss. Uh, song you probably don't know, but if you heard the beat, you would know it. Then finally, Crisscross in 1992. Um, I got you the music video for Jump right there. If you haven't, if you haven't heard Jump, uh, theoretically, it's actually a diss track. It's actually a diss, diss track against another uh, preteen rap group called ABC, another bad creation. Um, I swear to you, I'm not making this up. The feud was who wore their pants backward first. Uh, Crisscross was known for wearing their clothes backwards. When they did that, ABC claimed they did it first, but they actually had wore their clothes inside out and backwards, which they said was different. And they're honestly a pair of 13-year-olds. Actually, ABC was even younger. Some members of ABC were like still in their like single digits. They're like 9 or 10 years old. Uh, it was a feud for, for babies. It was the early 90s. It was a weird time, I'll tell you that. Uh, with that, Dupree makes his own label, So So Deaf. If you look at the big, uh, go over back one slide, you'll see the... So so deaf logo uh, signs a lot of young people. A lot of young people. Uh, that's actually a reoccurring criticism of Jermaine Dupree, is that he kind of acts like Fagin from Oliver Twist. That's a that's a weird literary reference for rappers, but it makes sense if you're familiar with the with Oliver Twist. Uh, Fagin is the like the, the king of the thieves who doesn't do a lot of work himself. Just gets like young people to serve as his pickpockets. Uh, that's kind of the criticism leveled at Jermaine Dupri a lot. A lot of his acts are very young. A lot of them are very popish. Uh, he shows up a lot in music videos and, you know, in their promotion, even though he does do some rap songs. He's not much of a rapper, not really much of a producer either. Like, he can't really craft a beat. Um, his, next, his next biggest sustained success, which is going to be a little bit later, uh, we're not really going to get into it in this class, is Little Bow Wow, but that's really later after Atlanta has established itself as a hip-hop destination. I should also mention something very quick that also happens in 1992, which also helps to get Atlanta some attention. I'll be talking about it a lot more next week. Uh, There's a collective group called Arrested Development. They find success with a song called Tennessee. I'll be talking about this a lot, lot, lot more next week when we talk about country rap. Uh, They win a ton of Grammys. But between Crisscross and Arrested Development, Atlanta is seen as like, hey, there might be something to be said for Atlanta in the hip-hop world. And go over t- two more to get to number five, uh, LaFace. 
despite the success of these groups, Atlanta was really yet to develop a really autonomous sound. Um, Arrested Development was so weird and, and so out there. It was not one that like anybody else could really easily replicate. Uh, Criss Cross was pretty much just pop rap for pop rap's sake. Nothing that you could really like base a movement off of. A lot of emulation of other areas, and like I said, the weirdness that was Arrested Development, we'll talk about them much more next week, doesn't really spread to other groups. That's about to change thanks to one record label and a remarkable string of just signings. Uh, they've done really good. But to begin with, there was a really crappy uh, R&B group called the name of Deal. Uh, they're called The Deal. If you go over one slide, you'll see The Deal. There they are. Um, very standard, very forgettable R&B group. Um, they actually have a hit right when they break up. Pretty much, they broke up, and then their song, one of their singles, becomes a major hit single, so they have to kind of like come back together for like promotion and stuff and make a video even though the guys have pretty much moved on very forgettable uh, the song is called Two Occasions if you want to look it up uh, nothing really worth uh, looking up though but what is important is that the drummer and the guitarist uh, of this band of the deal become friends if you look at the picture of the deal uh, the guitarist is on the top the drummer is on the bottom the guitarist is uh, one Ken Babyface Edmonds and the uh, drummer is one Antonio L.A. Reed. Okay? Uh, that's, their nicknames are L.A. and Babyface. They combine their nicknames to make LaFace Records. Uh, they are not originally from Atlanta. They just, you know, decide to settle in Atlanta because it's fairly cheap. Uh, it's much cheaper than a place like Los Angeles or New York. Uh, the deal was based primarily in Los Angeles. Uh, neither of these guys are from Los Angeles. Uh, they're both weirdly from the Midwest. Uh, one's from Indianapolis. The other one's uh, from, like, Kansas City. No, no, no. Uh, Minneapolis and Cincinnati. Sorry, Indianapolis and Cincinnati, not Kansas City. Uh, but they decide, you know, we're going to move to suburban Atlanta. Uh, you know, big lot spaces. You can get a large house there for not as much money. And they're like, plus there might be an untapped potential here. You know, they, they've been hearing about what's going on with Jermaine Dupree, with something like Jump. They're like, you know what, maybe we can find more acts here. Maybe more R&B or other, maybe not rap acts. Uh, the first group that does make a big splash on the face, though, is TLC, who, don't worry, we're going to talk about much, much more when we talk about lady rappers. Uh, it's a girl group. Uh, they're primarily R&B, but they do have uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, who is a rapper. Uh, but the first hip-hop group, the first pure rap group that LaFace signs is a pair of high school students who only met earlier that year. And pretty much uh, these two guys, if you go over one slide, that's not going to be no secret about this. Uh, Andre 3000 Benjamin and Antoine Big Boy Patton would make out OutKast. Uh, they became arguably the defining Atlanta group. If you want to talk about, like, you know, what is an Atlanta sound, what makes Atlanta distinct from the other place, you got to look at something like OutKast. They really helped develop what later becomes known as the Dirty South Sound. Now, the duo meets uh, freestyle battling in Atlanta Mall. They both go to the same high school. Uh, they make a very unconventional duo. Uh, unconventional is putting it very mildly. Uh, Big Boy is a fairly conventional rapper, uh, pretty much the straight man of the group, fairly standard rapping. Um, Andre 3000, however, very artistic guy, not very conventional hip-hop, very good rapper, very creative rapper. Um... You know, when it comes to their to their rhymes, uh, Andre 3000 is a bit more out there. 
bit more, I don't want to say clever, but just like, not weird, just kind of out there with some of the rhymes. Uh, Big Boy has much more conventional uh, rhyming schemes, uh, much more conventional hip-hop. They're both excellent rappers. They're both excellent rappers, but like, I'm, I'm trying to think of a comparison where it's like, Big Boy is like a very good standard, very, very good standard, and Andre 3000 is just like, very good, but kind of wackadoodle out there. Uh, you kind of see it in some of their earlier music videos, like with Rosa Parks. Actually, Rosa Parks, you, you have a clip of that. Watch it right now. Uh, Rosa Parks, it kind of shows that how we're combining this, like, you know, spaceman alien ship, you know, Andre 3000 stuff with the kind of conventional, you know, Cadillacs and fancy jewelry of Big Boy. Uh, and, and even though they're very different styles, they work exceptionally well together. They work better together than they really ought to work. Uh, their unique sound is really crafted by the Dungeon Family. If you if you go over right there, you will see the collective Dungeon Family. That's everybody in the Dungeon Family. Like, anybody who's even halfway associated with the Dungeon Family uh, is in this picture right there. Um, they get their name. It's, it's uh, mainly a collective of three producers that go by the name of Organized Noise. Uh, basically, they were, uh, they're made up of Rico Wade, Ray Murray, and Sleepy Brown. Uh, Sleepy Brown is the one you may be most familiar with because he does some songs with Big Boy later on as a, as a solo artist. Um, they're called The Dungeon because the recording studio is in the basement of Rico Wade's mama's house. Basically, uh, Rico Wade, his, his mom, you know, lets him live in the basement, and he's got this recording studio... Um, it was affectionately known as the Dungeon because it was a basement. Um, they come up with some really creative stuff. I mean, LaFace is pretty much their distributor. But pretty much anything when it comes to Outkast comes from the Dungeon, comes from the Dungeon family. Uh, they produce pretty much all their albums. Uh, Outkast really doesn't get outside producers. We'll talk about that later in class, just the weirdness that is Outkast music. Uniqueness, not weirdness, but it's unlike anything else that comes out in rap music. I should also mention the Goody Mob, who's also pictured in the Dungeon Family picture. Uh, in the Dungeon Family, uh, the Goody Mob, another kind of collective, includes CeeLo Green, who you might be familiar with from like The Voice or whatever. He's not really a rapper, he's more of a singer. They're also mentioned members of the Dungeon Family, as well as high school classmates of the members of Outkast. Uh, Outkast's first single was The Player's Ball, fairly conventional rap song that it, it charted fairly well. Um... This was followed up by their first album. Here we go. I'm going to butcher it, so sorry. Southern Playastic Cadillac Music. Southern Playastic Cadillac Music, which is a very big hit that denotes the beginning of a unique Southern sound. It's something that is different sounding than the other hip-hop groups out there from other places. Uh, the Dirty South sound, what we're really talking about when we say Dirty South, it's not really profanity. It's more about like a sense of almost poverty. Um, talks about the you know life in for African Americans within the South, really emphasize what he calls the dirty nature of it. Um, it's it's poor, it's it's gritty, you know this poverty. It, it's not as slick as what's being shown in other music videos. You know they might have Cadillacs or something, but they're older Cadillacs. Um, the clubs are in their houses that are showing are a bit a bit more run down. It's not glamorized. It's not glamorized. It, it's it's not like gangster rap. They're they're not really talking about about being gangsters or killers or anything. And it's certainly not as affluent as something like mafioso rap, which Jay-Z is doing, very much like, you know, affluence over and above consumption. Um, it's like, hey, we're living okay, but we're living in the South, and the South has got its own quirks to it. Uh, when we talk about the dirty South, that's really what we're referring to, is a sense of grittiness. 
a sense of just like this is a place that's fairly poor and it's been treated fairly rough. Uh, this album gives Outkast a lot of good press. Uh, they win Best Rap Group at, believe it or not, Cover One Slide, the 1995 Source Awards. That's right. The Source Awards were like Suge Knight threatened everybody, and then, you know, where the East Coast, West Coast through feud blew up. Uh, they actually win Best New Artist. And when they come up to accept the award, they get booed. Uh, basically, they start getting booed by the New York crowd. I'm not sure who New York wanted, but they didn't want Outkast. And Andre 3000 pretty much stated, hey, listen, um, the South has things to say. Basically, it's like, hey, you, you know, y'all been sleeping in the South, y'all been playing our music, but you know what? The South has got things to say, and we're going to keep talking. And this seems a very, yet another very big moment from an already very big award show. And with the South, uh, Outkast leans more into developing a Southern, Dirty South sound. Uh, it should be mentioned, uh, they're much more of a Dungeon Family product than LaFace product. Um, LaFace pretty much distributes them. They don't have that much executive control over them. It's pretty much just the Dungeon Family. Don't worry about LaFace Records, though. Uh, they had just signed Usher, and they're about to make uh, a license to print money. Like, they're going to be fine. So between Outkast and Usher, they're doing phenomenal. They also get much more experimental after this, uh, doing a lot more with jazz music, soul music, and other... Non-conventional for hip-hop genres, go over one slide. For instance, Rosa Parks. Uh, Rosa Parks samples a whole ton of stuff. Uh, it samples like bluegrass almost, there's harmonica, uh, you know, kind of clapping. It, it, it's a very different sound that you heard anything else in rap music. Uh, it comes out in 1998, I should mention. It compares Outkast to Rosa Parks in that, hey, everybody, you know, move out of our way, get to the back of the bus, we're here, we're bringing a new sound. Now, one person who does not like this song, Rosa Parks, is Rosa Parks herself. Uh, Rosa Parks in this time, she is, you know, older. Uh, she is not living in the South anymore. She had long since moved to Detroit. Uh, whatever she hears about the song, apparently she does not like it. She thinks they're, like, kind of using her name in vain, basically saying almost as though she approves of the song in a way that she doesn't. She's also a very religious person who doesn't care for the profanity. So she actually sues Outkast and LaFace Records for illegal use of her name. Uh, this, this lawsuit goes on for years. Like, years. Uh, by the time it was finally disclosed in like 04, 05, um, Rosa Parks dies about six months after the case is finished. Uh, they settle for giving Rosa Parks an undisclosed amount of money and also uh, doing some sort of like youth education stuff. Uh, Outcast had to, you know, do some sort of uh, program for inner city use for like voter registration or something like that. Um, very interesting song when you listen to it. Uh, there's no denying though that Outcast is kind of the originators of the Dirty South. Uh, by the time they released Stankonia and Speakerbox slash The Love Below, uh, they're one of the group. If you go over one slide, you'll see the covers of Speakerbox and Love Below. Uh, they're one of the biggest groups, period, like rap or otherwise. Um, the Love Below and Speakerbox are released in 2003. It's a double album. It's their commercial, it's their biggest commercial hit by far, by far, by far. Like, it has multiple number one songs come off it in the Billboard charts. Also, critically acclaimed, it's their number one albums by far. They win all the Grammys. It also denotes their ending, weirdly enough. Um, basically, each rapper kind of took one album for their own. Uh, Andre 3000 took on The Love Below. It was pretty much an Andre 3000 solo album. 
Big Boy put out Speaker Box. It was pretty much a Big Boy solo album. They did guest spots on each other's, but it was mainly just like the two halves that made up the group were kind of splitting apart a little bit. Um, they did do sporadic reunions after this. Very sporadic. They also had a really weird movie called Idlewild, which I would not recommend, but the soundtrack's pretty good. Um, they've pretty much been on hiatus ever since. Uh, Big Boy does do rapping. He had his own record label for a while, the Purple Ribbon All-Stars. He does movies sometimes. Andre 3000 also does movies. He also raps a little bit here and there. Uh, ironically, he did a song with UGK, um, fairly well-known song with uh, you know, I Choose You. Um, now he's playing a lot of flute. Interesting guy. Um, you can talk to him. I mean, you know, he's fairly nice to talk to. He just doesn't want to talk about Outkast or rap too much anymore. He, he's a weird dude. I've talked to him some. He's <sighs> weird in the sense of creative. It's not like, oh, I'm uncomfortable talking to this guy. But it's just like, oh, you know, I'm talking about this thing or spaceships or whatever. You're like, please tell me about, you know, please tell me about making bombs over Bad Dad. Oh, no, you're not? Okay. Uh, another guy I need to uh, mention, uh, because he's a huge Atlanta figure, also a very successful Atlanta figure, is Ludacris Bridges. Uh, Christopher Ludacris Bridges uh, gets his start in radio. He actually gets a start in radio. He's a radio DJ. Uh, then he gets a start into regular DJing. Um, really, he gets very well known, weirdly enough, not for rapping, but for DJing Freaknik. Now, if you haven't heard of Freaknik, don't worry, it's okay. Um, Freaknik used to be really, really big. Uh, they don't do it as much anymore. It's not as big as it once was. Uh, Freaknik started out as a collaboration of many of the city's HBCUs. A lot of HBCUs were involved with the Freaknik. It was kind of like a spring break. It was a spring break done in Atlanta Park. Uh, they had a lot of, like, voter registration, other, like, civic events. A lot of, you know, African-American sororities, HBCU sororities and fraternities get involved with it. Uh, however, as the 90s go on, it becomes like a mythically large wild party known for dancing and nudity and just like almost like Mardi Gras in downtown Atlanta. You can see in the pictures of the Freaknik, those are some of the cleaner pictures I could find. Uh, very much known for just being a wild and crazy time. It, it was viewed as almost like an urban spring break just for black people, very much into this new Atlanta slash Dirty South style. Anyway, uh, Ludacris gets into rapping in the late 90s uh, using a lot of his radio connections. Uh, pretty much he's already within radio. He knows pretty much everybody in radio and productions. And um, what's the word I'm looking for here? <coughs> Promotions. Uh, he also makes his own indie label, if you go over one slide, Disturbing the Peace Entertainment. Uh, Disturbing the Peace, DTP. Um, but his big connection slash deal comes in as he's signed as the headliner for Def Jam South. Uh, Def Jam is trying to break into the South. They've seen the success of Outkast and Jermaine Dupree. And so they're like, you know what? We want to get into the South. We're going to make a Southern branch of Def Jam. And we're going to use Ludacris as kind of our, he's our, he's our main guy. He's our, he's our headliner. He's our title, you know, he's our, you know, our title, title, title fighter. He's our racehorse, our prize horse, whatever you want to call it. He's the main dude. And he is able to be incredibly popular. Uh, throughout the mid-2000s, Ludacris was a consistently high-selling rapper, uh, pretty much the most consistent, like, when it comes to just, like, sales for a uh, Southern rapper. This is after, you know, Napster and Digital Distribution. He's still making quite a bit of money as a Southern rapper. He's also known for having an exceptionally fast delivery, uh, in contrast to a lot of other Southern rappers. Um, 
you know, of, of course, Houston rap when it's chopped and screwed is exceptionally slow. But by and large, Southern rappers are known for being a bit slower in their uh, in the speed of their delivery. Most Southern rappers are a bit slower. Sometimes they really lean upon the draw. We're going to talk about that quite a bit when we talk about country rap. Uh, Ludacris, though, is known for his exceptionally fast lyrics. Uh, not as fast as somebody like Twista, who's from Chicago, also in this time period. But for a much more rapid delivery than your conventional Southern rapper. Uh, his beats are also fairly conventional. Uh, he's he's really leaning upon the Def Jam uh, promotion machine. He does not really get too much into this dirty South sound. Um, but he does talk about the South quite a bit. Uh, for instance, a song like Georgia, which we're actually going to talk about more next week. But if you want to Google Georgia, it's Ludacris and Field Mob. Pretty interesting song. Now, the, the real subgenre that comes to dominate Dirty South rap and kind of really give it an even more distinct sound that's not just with Outkast, is crunk music. Uh, crunk music is a subgenre of Dirty South rap that really came to dominate everything in the genre from 2003 to, oh, let's say 2010 or 2008 or so. Ironically, there's a bit of controversy regarding its origins. Um, although it becomes synonymous with Atlanta, there's a lot of evidence that it actually begins in Memphis. A lot of evidence that it really begins in Memphis. And there's also the origin of the term crunk. Uh, the term crunk can mean a lot of different things. Uh, we don't know if it comes from Atlanta or from Memphis. It becomes more synonymous with Atlanta. There's evidence that it might come from Memphis or maybe something even older in the African-American vernacular. Uh, it can mean a lot of different things. Uh, the etymology of the word crunk is actually quite complex. Uh, it can mean either crazy drunk or, or like, you know, like bowed up, ready to fight. Or just like, you know, like, hey, we're going to get crazy. We're just going to get, like, almost like turned up. Like, you can't even think what's going on. Um, Outcast is probably the first to really use the term in the rap world in 1993 in Play Is Ball. So in their first song, they use the term crunk. They're not crunk music. Outcast is not crunk music. What becomes later on is crunk music. Um, they just are the ones who kind of get the term into a lot more. Now, one of, one of the groups that's really important to this, you've ever one slide, is the Serial Killers. Uh, they're a Memphis group that come together in the early 90s, really, really based upon the Ghetto Boys' horrorcore stuff. We mentioned how the Ghetto Boys become better known as kind of a conventional rap group, but their horrorcore, some of Bushwick, Bushwick Bill in general, is just a, like, the things he rap about is, is very dark and disturbing, uh, like you know, like I said, ne necrophilia, like killing people, being a psychopath, things like that. And so they're a Memphis group. They come together. They call themselves the, the Serial Killers. If you see right there, this is a picture of the Serial Killers. You can see they're they're kind of doing this whole like you know, we're wearing masks, we have guns, we're not really gangsters, we're just crazy people. A lot of skull imagery going on. A lot of people in the group. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of people in the group. Uh, an exceptional amount of people in the group. Uh, the two that I want you to know about, though, are the ones at the bottom, uh, bottom middle and bottom left. That is uh, DJ Paul in the middle and Juicy J. Uh, they're the most important of the serial killers. Uh, they can uh, they can kind of continue on with their kind of horror theme raps in the 1990s. Uh, they kind of get into like a very like low mid level uh, record deal with like a kind of a mid major uh, record company. Uh, the record company's like, please do more conventional music. Uh, you know, you're very much kind of getting into this, uh, you know, 
horror stuff. It's not really selling. Can you do something a bit more conventional? And so they start kind of doing the origins in their quote-unquote conventional music of what's later going to become known as crunk music. Uh, crunk music, crunk music production is known for its hev- for its heavy, heavy, heavy bass lines, uh, fairly repetitive orchestrations. It's only known for being like a bar or two. One of the other rap songs might be several bars that are repeated. Uh, known for its keyboard, if there's one thing that crunk music is very much known for, is for hand claps. Uh, not even real hand claps, but like uh, synthesized hand claps. So like you'll just hear very much the hand claps, very sane. Um, it's said to be kind of in a call and response uh, style. A lot of crunk music is a lot of just like repeating lines with not too much rapping per se. Uh, this kind of call and response has been seen in things like Delta church music. Uh, the Mississippi Delta, uh, very well known for its uh, kind of call and response style. Uh, Memphis is in Tennessee, but it's often considered one of the largest cities in Mississippi because all the Mississippi expats who come to Memphis for a job. Uh, the guy who mainly comes up with the style is DJ Paul, seen there in the middle. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you will see DJ Paul and Juicy J. Um, there they are, right there. DJ Paul is the one who really comes up with the style. It's fairly easy to produce and emulate. Um, crunk music does not mean much in terms of like technology for the orchestration. They also changed their name to the 3-6 Mafia. Uh, they changed their name to the 3-6 Mafia, which is a reference to 6-6-6. They, they totally get rid of the whole horror motif. Uh, starts coming into the more party crunk music. Uh, also, a, a group like 8-Ball and uh, MJG. Uh, they're another Memphis duo that kind of take on this kind of uh, crunk style. Still very much seen as a Memphis thing. Mainly gets known for strip clubs. Uh, mainly gets known as strip club music. Music for the strip club. At first it wasn't seen as music that was really good to dance to. But then it became seen as music that you just kind of go crazy to. You just listen to it and it gets you amped up. Um, also, strip clubs were the first one to really play this type of music. And it's not really known for its musical, sorry, for its lyrical content. Um, not as repetitive as mumble rap, but does not have the most uh, complex uh, raps, uh, rhyme schemes. By 1996, uh, 3-6 Mafia has put out an album containing the word crunk, influenced a lot of other Memphis rappers to do the same. It's still mainly underground, uh, spreading mainly in strip clubs in Memphis, but also in other places in the, in the Delta. Uh, the strip club is not exactly an underground, like, music conveyance system, but songs that get popular in the strip club, the people who DJ strip clubs, they kind of get around to other strip clubs. So it's probably through the strip clubs that this comes to Atlanta, where Jonathan Smith really takes on the genre and becomes its figurehead, uh, better known as Lil John. If you go one more slide, you will see Lil John. Now, Jonathan Smith, Lil John, whatever you want to call him, he is a fascinating figure. He is probably one of the most fascinating figures because his background is not rap at all. He does not have a theoretically hip-hop background. He comes from an exceptionally privileged background. Like, exceptionally privileged. Like, very privileged background. I mean, maybe not... I mean, okay, for thing in the music business, Jermaine Dupri's dad has gotten a better stop, but for having more money and affluence, Little John's dad's got him beat. Uh, Little John's dad is an engineer, not just an engineer, like a chief engineer at Lockheed Martin. It's so like lock at Lockhead, so like, you know, like making aircraft and stuff. 
and provides a super upper, 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 upper middle class. Pretty much, he's he's wealthy. Uh, it's upper class. You can even drop the middle class. Little John grows up upper class um, in suburban Atlanta. And he's able to provide a very upper class lifestyle for his children. Sorry, Little John's dad is. Um, very affluent engineer. Uh, Little John, for instance, would talk about uh, throwing house parties at his parents' five-story house. Like, his parents' house had five stories. Like, that's that's affluent, okay? Uh, Little John's also very intelligent. He's fascinated with uh, computers in this time period, fascinated with computers. Goes to a magnet school in suburban, um, suburban Atlanta. And he, he finds it too easy, weirdly enough. He goes to a very elite magnet school in, in suburban Atlanta. Um, he was getting A's until one day he told his mom, it's like, you know, this is too easy. I, I don't care anymore. I'm going to drop out. I, I, you know, all I care about is computers. He's mainly a computer nerd. Um, you know, he grows up in like the 80s and his dad's wealthy enough to provide him like all the computers because he's an engineer and gets all these computers from work. And so Little John's really interested in computers, but he also kind of likes party promotion. He gets his start as a DJ in Atlanta in the early 90s, uh, does a lot of party promotion, artist representation, a lot of stuff related to rap music, but not like making the music. A lot of it in just kind of the general vicinity of rap music. Uh, his big break in rap music, though, comes with Jermaine Dupree. Basically, Jermaine Dupree needs an A&R guy for So So Deaf, needs a guy to do promotion for So So Deaf, and he takes on Little John. So, weirdly, Little John and du Jermaine Dupree are connected. Um, Little John is actually pretty successful at promotion. Uh, he's actually pretty successful in like putting out an album uh, of not his, but a compilation. Uh, for instance, uh, oh god, what was the song that they did the Running Man to like a year ago? Ah, uh, jeez, what was the name of that song? Oh, I'm going to look it up. This song. You can probably hear it right now. Let me get closer to the speaker. Boy, you should know that I've got you on my mind Your secret admirer I've been watching You know the song. You know the song. Uh, that was not a Little John produced song. That's a song that Little John made sure was on an album. It became a pretty big hit back in the 90s. And then somebody on TikTok or whatever, or Vine, made a Running Man out of it. So, And by the way, the modern Running Man is not the classic Running Man. Ask me about that in class. i got to give you all an education on that. So he's pretty, he's pretty successful at, at, at So So Deaf. But he finds that the, DJ, the crowds that he DJs for, they want more rowdy music. They want the stuff from Memphis. They want MJG and, uh, and Eight Ball, and, and also Three Six Mafia. So he plays the bass very loud, but the music is not really designed to be club music. It's designed to be strip club music, which is a different genre altogether. So Little John decides, you know what? I'm going to make purposely crunk music, like music that's purposely for the club. Musically, music designed to hype up a party, not get strippers to strip. And so John, who's got money, by the way, I should iterate that, he makes his own label, BME Entertainment, uh, sorry, BME Records. BME stands for Black Music Entertainment. That's the most generic name for a label ever, but he takes it. To promote his new style of crunk music, uh, he's not a rapper. I should iterate that a million times. He is not a rapper. So he finds two old friends of his, uh, Sammy, Big Sam Norris, and Wendell Little Bo Neil to do most of the rapping. Uh, they are the East Side Boys. 
Uh, their first release is 1997's uh, Get Crunk Who You With, uh, which you see right there, uh, which pretty much shells mainly in Atlanta. Uh, Little John's style is mainly yelling. He mainly yells stuff in the Eastside Boys rap, and they don't really rap all that much. I really should note this, that a lot of hip-hop purists, a lot of rap purists, do not like crunk music. They don't like Dirty South music, and they really don't like crunk music, because it's seen as way too simplistic. Very simplistic in terms of orchestration, very simplistic in terms of lyrics. Like, super simplistic. Like, almost offensively simplistic. But then again, people say that about, like, mumble rap and the Migos. I forgot what rap song I heard, but it was like the same verse repeated a bunch of times. It was only two minutes. And I was like, you know what? That's probably how rap purists felt about crunk music. Still, it's, it's big enough for them to get a lot more albums before their uh, 2001 national release. Uh, they're able to sell enough in Atlanta to get, to get national distribution. Uh, they put a uh, Put Your Hood Up, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, this album contains collaborations with Ludacris, 3-6 Mafia, The Dungeon Family, Pretty much anybody noteworthy in Atlanta and Memphis. Uh, that is one thing I will say about Atlanta. It's a uh, small enough scene to be pretty accommodating. Uh, there is no real beef within the uh, entire uh, city, really. Um, for instance, if you look at the music video for Welcome to Atlanta, uh, pretty much every Atlanta rap or rap-adjacent person, with the exception of Outkast, is in the music video doing a cameo or something. Um, and the Dungeon Family even shows up for that one. Like, CeeLo's in that one. But weirdly, Outkast was not. I don't know why. They didn't have beef with them or anything. So the al- uh, we'll talk about later. We'll talk about that later. Uh, the album makes Crunk and Little John a star. The album that really turns them into a star is 2001's Kings of Crunk. If you go over one slide, you will see Kings of Crunk. If you go over to Moodle, you will see the music video for Play No Games, which I think is probably the cleanest of the Little John music videos. Uh, it's kind of a parody of Animal House. They, they show... Uh, Little John and the Eastside Boys now have their own fraternity, and pretty much um, it's mainly collaborations. Uh, Little John is mainly known as a collaborator. He will yell stuff, but he won't really rap. He won't really sing. In fact, one of the reasons why I picked Plato Dames is that he he raps for about eight bars, so not a ton of rapping. Uh, for instance, I mean, you know, he Little John once he becomes fairly famous and well known. Uh, pretty much is happy to be just a producer and a, mainly a personality. Uh, for instance, Get Low, which is a song that really puts Little John on the map, um, has no Little John on it. <laughs> Little John yells stuff, he does not rap. Uh, this is reflected in the Chappelle Show skit, which you've probably heard of. If you go over one slide, you'll see Dave Chappelle's Little John. We're pretty much, uh, li- Dave Chappelle's Little John impression is pretty much just him going, What? Yeah! Okay! That's my horrible Dave Chappelle doing a Little John impression. That's pretty much what Little John was known for, and Little John was actually okay with that. He actually appears on Chappelle's show doing the same thing. That, that was really known. Uh, the apex of Crunk, if you will, is probably the 2004 song Yeah, which was a collaboration between Usher, uh, Little John, and Ludacris. Uh, which chops the Billboard charts forever. Like, it is on the Billboard charts in 04 for, like, ever. It's a very long-charting number one single. It combines the R&B of, of Usher, remember who's from LaFace Records, with Little John's crunk production and the rapping of Ludacris. Uh, weirdly enough, they actually do another collaboration, uh, Lovers and Friends, which is a massive hit only within Atlanta. Um, the video I have for you there is uh, pretty much the entire Atlanta rap scene performing together. It is 
Usher, Ludacris, Little John, and Jermaine Dupri performing live at the So So Def Twenty uh, Year Reunion concert, and they do they do Lovers and Friends, which was a hit only in Atlanta, and then they do Yeah, which was a hit for the entire country. Uh, also, I should mention uh, this is seen as a year that Southern rap kind of took over the world because Outkast's uh, double album of Speaker Box of Love Love Below wins Best um, Album at the Grammys. And uh, Three Six Mafia even wins an Oscar for Best Rap Song for Hustle and Flow, which is about the really gritty rap world of Memphis. Ironically, Ludacris is in that movie, too. He, he, he plays in that as well. Uh, Hustle and Flow, if you haven't seen it, pretty good of, of the representative, like, the dirty aesthetic of Southern rap. It's, you know, it's kind of, you, you can just feel the, the grit if you watch that movie, where it's, like, dirty in the sense of just, like, Things need to be power washed. Does that make sense? Like the air conditioning's not working. Everybody's sweaty. It's hot. It's humid. You know the house has seen better days. Maybe it hasn't. Everything's made out of cinder blocks. It's just gritty, dirty. And it's not as though crunk died. It just became ubiquitous for a while, and then the, the you know the 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 fad kind of fled. I want to say flad, but like you know there was an ebb and then kind of a flow, and it kind of flowed back. Um, Atlanta wasn't the, like, only place for rap after 2010 or so, but it remained a popular location. I mean, for a while, like in the early 2000s, Atlanta was the capital of the rap world, full stop. Uh, I do have a video, by the way, of 3-6 Mafia winning the Oscar. If you want to see pure, unadulterated joy of, like, oh my god, we won an Oscar, we have no business running, winning an Oscar... It's 3-6 Mafia for their song, It's Hard Out There for a Pimp. I would have preferred Whoop That Trick. I think Whoop That Trick is a better song from the same, uh, from Hustle and Flow, also done by 3-6 Mafia. But you know what? They gave him for It's a Hard Out There for a Pimp. I don't know. But just the sheer, like, joy, sheer, like, elation of, like, oh, my God, we won an Oscar. What the hell is going on? Oh, my God, that's George Clooney. Hey, George Clooney, you're cool. You were nice to me earlier today. Like, they are just, like, out of their mind excited. It's a, it's a fun video to watch. I will give you that. Uh, Little John, who, by the way, never stopped being an upper-middle-class guy. Uh, Little John, like, <laughs> like he, he was always a persona. The real Little John, you can see it if you ever watch his... Uh, a visit on MTV Cribs, where basically they show his house, where it's just like, it's not really opulent, it's like kind of upper middle class, and like he's got his wife, and he doesn't really mess around, he doesn't, you know, he's you know he's just like, hey, Radio's my favorite movie, it's a good movie, I know they might not got me street cled, but I like the movie Radio, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s in it, it's a good movie, it's heartwarming. Uh, he keeps up, becoming better known as a personality, uh, very much in the upper class world, uh, for instance, he does a ton of commercials, if you see, if you go over one slide, you'll see him on The Apprentice with uh, with with uh, Dennis Rodman. So he's got a weird connection to Donald Trump, our current president, that he was on The Apprentice for quite a while. Does commercials and the like. Uh, I should mention Duke Deuce, who's a Memphis crunk artist who just came out. He's hailed as the quote unquote savior of crunk music. Uh, he put out a song recently called "Crunk Ain't Dead," which if you haven't listened to it, is a very crunk crunk song. Uh, he, he calls himself a crunk revivalist. He's like, I need to bring crunk music back to the original. Um, unsurprisingly, Little John appeared on the remix for Crunk A Dead because, frankly, Little John is synonymous with crunk. And even though um, you know Duke Deuce is a crunk purist from Memphis, you get crunk credibility by doing stuff with Little John. 
Now, here's the discussion part. Don't go over to the slide yet. I'm just going to tell you what the thing is about. I'll tell you what the title is, and then we're going to talk about it. The title is Confederate Go Over One Slide. Remember how I said uh, Put Your Hood Up was like the first Little John album that got national distribution? This is the cover for Put Your Hood Up. Now, I bet you're wondering, huh, that's a Confederate flag. Now, yes, their Confederate flags are burning, but then you have Little John wrap the Confederate flag. And this is where you get to the discussion of how do you claim a very problematic Southern identity? How do you claim a very regional identity? We're going to talk about the Confederate flag in terms of rap music because we're going to do it again next week. We talk about country rap, but I just want to get you wet on this a little bit. Just get you, just get you, get your, get your, you know, get you a little wet. Get you, put your feet in the water real quick before we really dive in next week. Uh, for instance, like I said, in Put Your Hood Up, Little John is wrapped in a Confederate flag. Now you could argue, hey, he's burning other Confederate flags, so good for Little John. But still, it's not like he's really using it for a racist reason or a Confederate reason. Uh, mainly to be seen for the sake of Southern identity. Uh, up until fairly recently, the Southern flag was viewed, uh, the Confederate flag was often interpreted as one of a Southern, not necessarily Confederate identity or heritage, and that can theoretically apply to African Americans as well. Um, is this problematic? Sweet, sassy, mo lassie, yes it is. Could we talk a lot about how weird this is? Good God, we will, but he's not the only Southern rapper to do so. For instance, go over one slide. This is in the music video for uh, Miss Jackson, which is a very, very popular, important, and fun Outkast song. Uh, throughout the entire video, Andre 3000 is wearing a Confederate uh, belt buckle, a Confederate flag belt buckle. Likewise, go over one slide, you'll see that Ludacris once did a performance in entirely a Southern Confederate flag outfit before at the very end he stomped it out. He took off his outfit. He was wearing like a red, black and green, kind of the, you know, Kenta cloth, uh, African-American, well, not African-American, African kind of dashiki type material. And then he kind of stomps the Confederate flag. But it, you can see in a lot of Dirty South rappers, there's this weird use of the Confederate flag to mean a southern regional thing, not necessarily a racial, racist thing. And it demonstrates a very conflicted history, to say the least, that African Americans have with the South. And I want y'all to discuss that. Uh, this idea that it's a place that, you know, they're from. They're from the South. Dirty South rappers have pride in being from the South. But it's also a very problematic pride. It's not something you can really embrace wholesale. You know, for an African-American to embrace this Confederate flag like this, you know, it, like even though it's viewed as a regional thing, it, it is worthy of discussion. If you go over one more slide, you'll see uh, some early promo shots of Little John and the East Side Boys, you know, with the Confederate flag. It's kind of a regional identity, not a necessarily racial identity. Discuss this in class. Uh, we're going to have some interesting discussions about this, I'm sure. Uh, we're going to be discussing a lot about the Southern flag, though, um, with uh, and basically how a lot of these country rap feelers, country rappers feel about coming from quote a place where the flag means more than me. Uh, that is a David Banner lyric. We're going to talk about that extensively next week. Uh, it's kind of a continuation of the Dirty South when we talk about country rap. But with that, this is Dr. Tully signing off for Dirty South rap, primarily Houston and Atlanta.
And I should also mention for discussion, I should mention quick, um, even though they're from the quote-unquote poor, dirty South, a lot of these figures come from pretty affluent backgrounds, or like wealthy, well-to-do backgrounds, suburban backgrounds, particularly Jermaine Dupree and Little John. And you can talk about that, how that becomes part of the experience as well. 